On this episode of the podcast, a list of the 20 creepiest movie nuns, a retrospective of Jared's questionable history as a composer, and we consider throwing it all away to break into the booming hitman industry. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm Paul Tulin. And this is the best pandemic ever. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Best Pandemic Ever podcast with Paul Tulin and myself, Jared Nichols, and our very special guest today, Matt Chernoff. Again, Paul and I always marvel at the quality of guests that we get, and I think at some point, Paul, we're really just going to have to start accepting the fact that people listen to the show. In fact, Matt confessed that he's been listening to this show since episode one. And let me tell you a little bit about Matt so you understand why it kind of blows our mind that people want to come spend time with us. Uh, Matt has many, many things going for him. Uh, but this guy, uh, Matt, I think it's safe to say, I mean, you, you're pretty prolific here. You're a screenwriter, journalist, podcaster. Uh, so I was re- reading through this. You've got your films are premiered on Sci-Fi Channel, which I, I want to definitely find out more about some of these uh, these shows that you've put together. Obviously, your portfolio of uh, scripts for different movies. Paul's been talking about those nonstop. Um, yeah, you're and Paul, if I and help me if I'm getting this wrong, but you are considered the foremost expert on James Bond. Is that correct? Oh no, no, no. There are some really good people out there, but I work with. Uh, several of the best in the business uh, on a podcast called James Bond Radio. Ah, yeah, nice. they've been going for about five or so years. <clears throat> Top of the line James Bond podcast, awesome content, uh, great guests. We have um, in the five years that we've been doing that show, we had Roger Moore on the show r- cool. shortly before his death, which is a major coup. Uh, several of the Bond directors. Uh, great Bond villain Robert Davi, who you've seen in Goonies and Lethal Weapon, and uh, you know a ton of great movies, Die Hard. So yeah, the, um, those guys are the Bond super experts. I'm a super fan, I would say. The, I, I'm not so sold on all the dates and who did what every single second, but but I love that series dearly. Yeah, yeah. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you're the foremost expert on James Bond, and that's the story that I'm going to go with. And I would encourage my listeners to go with that one as well. Right, Paul? Paul has muted himself because clearly <laughs> Paul is not as smart as I am and knows how to turn off. A, turn no, off. did I? No, yeah. that was a glitch. That was no. <laughs> the Matrix. No, so, so, to be, so to be clear, once again, as always, you know, the reality of podcasting, as wonderful as it is and as, as great as it is for giving virtually anybody a voice, it's always one degree from complete bullshit, right? Like if you skew the camera just a little bit, you're going to see that I'm in my kid's playroom. And if you're going to – it's always those kind of things. So the reality of most of these guests – who are amazing, has nothing to do with the quality of the show or Jared or I. So the, so the truth is, Matt is a childhood friend of my wife. And like many things in my life that are of, have any meaning or quality, it's because she dragged it, you know, kicking and screaming into my life. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's really so. And Matt and I met for the first time at their high school. Was it the 25th high school reunion? Yeah, I think I think it was the 25th. I think we met first at that bowling alley, um, the Cranston oh. Bowl. Yeah. God, the bowling alley. Yeah. And, and so, and, you know, and I cornered and I cornered Matt that evening. And then I just, and then we just, we just talked and talked and talked and talked. And every once in a while, someone would come by who hadn't seen him in decades and grew up with them. And I'd be like, get out of here, go away. You know? And so, so I ruined that, in the, that evening entirely for him for any kind of nostalgia. But it was, you know, it was, it was, it was wonderful for me. And that's really what it's, what it's all about. Right. I mean, it's what can I, you know, how can it be good? But that's, 
that's where it came from. You know, I mean, he's a, he's he's been how long have you known Christine? Probably since you uh, guys were in junior high, maybe. Oh, I think wow. it was yeah. from a long, long time ago. Maybe even before that. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure. Um, yeah, I'm mean, Cranston was a very small little place, so we all got to know each other really well. That reunion was so great because. As much as I wanted to talk to all those people who I went to school with, seeing you there was a big part of this. She really sold you as a somebody I needed to talk to, and I could see why as soon as we started speaking. Uh, as as a writer, I love to meet people with, from different backgrounds, different careers, and uh, because I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, save this person's contact info. They might be able to answer a question down the line. So when you get to meet a Green Beret, it's like it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies, the the John Wayne Green Berets movie. So, um, I've always thought in the back of my mind, the second that I start writing again, screenplays again, and not writing about movies, you're going to have to be one of these contacts I hit up for uh, expertise in the area. Oh yeah, and then and then you know, and then Christine will not be able to roll her eyes in frustration when I'm like, that's not accurate. That's not accurate. That's not, you know what I mean? We can actually get a few things right. Be like, oh no, this is how this works. You know, yeah, the problem is it's the... always way more, yeah, it's, yeah. it's always way more mundane than people think, but. No, I know what um, you mean about the, the, um, that attention to detail. If, if that's something you always look for in those films right now, I'm writing the production notes for the new Tom Clancy movie that's coming out on Amazon called without remorse. They've adapted one of his early novels, and uh, it's um, that film's coming out soon with Guy Pearce. Um, Michael B. Jordan is oh, wow. the the lead. So I got to interview all of the cast and crew, the director, the producers, and one of my favorite things to interview with on that project was the military advisors and the uh, stunt guys. Those guys, the military advisors on this movie, I've seen it a couple of times already. I'm not sure when it's going to premiere, but definitely keep an eye out for it hugely authentic the combat moves are really just down to the every little detail the hardware was hugely important i didn't get to talk to the armorer i always love doing that when i get to interview cast and crew because those guys have stories that nobody else does the guys who provide the weapons for these films so the the military advisors on without remorse really kicked this movie up a notch keep an eye out for it when it when it premieres what was the movie I know I can always ask Matt, what was the movie that? And he'd probably be able to answer yeah. it. What was the movie where Russell Crowe was and Meg Ryan, um, he was involved in Kidnap and Ransom. Um, I think it's called it may have been called Proof of Life. I yep, think it that might was it. Proof, Proof of Life, of Life. right? Yeah. At the end of Proof of Life, they decide that they've negotiated, 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 and they go, they go for the kinetic option. They're like, okay, we're going to attempt a rescue operation, which they almost never do. And I can tell you that that, that, that small unit engagement that they did at the end – Somebody was advising them who was an expert because that they got all of that so dead on. It was really impressive. That was a, one of the few times where I was like, wow, that all looked authentic and right. Um, I mean, and the movie wasn't bad, but that part of it, I always stood out in my mind. Oh, that's high praise from uh, somebody who knows his business. Yeah, it's it's hard to balance. I assume from from these guys, um, from the filmmakers perspective, to balance the that authenticity with the drama that you want to create. Sometimes the yeah. authenticity doesn't look particularly thrilling on screen. It's kind of small details, tiny little moves that would be hard to catch on a big screen. So they have to fake certain things or, or adjust certain things. And it's fun to hear these guys speak off the record because I'm, I'm doing the original interviews for these production notes. And then they get honed down to the 
cleaned up version that they want to present to the public behind the scenes these guys they're fighting every step of the way to make this stuff as realistic as possible so it's uh you know i wonder who the, so, the advisor so, was on that one hmm. yeah so what are the um so what are production notes like how are they sure. how do they manifest to the public they don't not to the public they um production notes are primarily designed for other reporters or critics or people who are going to be engaging with the movie, uh, doing interviews with the lead actors or the cast and crew, or or for film critics who maybe don't have the time to write down exactly the plot of the movie. They are more taking notes while they're watching it about what they feel about certain scenes. So production notes are, are cobbled together early in the process before the movie airs, and then they're distributed to journalists, basically. And it's the entire history of the film from who had the first idea to adapt this Tom Clancy novel, how the project developed from the earliest stages to the point where it's on screen, who came in at what point, why they cast Michael B. Jordan in this film, why they ca why they changed the sex of one of the characters from a male to a female, all, all these little details that journalists might be interested in. We do all that work ahead of time and then give it to them so that they can sound super smart and not waste the actor's time when it comes time to interview them. So they're, they're an wow. industry thing that the public doesn't really get to read. But we put a lot of effort into, at least I do, into making them read like long magazine articles, like really deep dives onto a, a particular subject. So you, they're kind of a cool little industry secret, I think. It's also a lucrative so, way for a writer to, to make extra bucks on the side. And you do, I mean, you do, a, you do a lot of that kind of inside industry writing, don't you? I mean, I mean, I know you do a lot of articles and variety. I remember seeing stuff being posted. My latest article on some of them are hilarious, man. Some of those, there's a lot of like, um, like top 10 lists of stuff. And, and, and you're a big, I think you're a big fan of the kind of horror genre sure. and the B movie genre. Oh, there's been some good ones. What, like, what was your, what was your favorite one of that kind of top 10 list stuff that you've done? Some of those are really fun. Um, the top 10 alligators and crocodiles in movie <laughs> history was a fun <laughs> article to do. Um, the top, the, the 10, no, I think I went 20 on this one. It was the 20 creepiest nuns in movie history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, then there was the creepiest Santa clauses. Uh, they give me a lot of creepiest, although sometimes they give me fun stuff like the, the 20 greatest dogs in movie history and uh, the, the best senior action figures, all of those guys like Liam Neeson and Mel Gibson and the, as they get older and older, we did a, an old Codgers action lineup. So yeah, the, the lists are fun. They play really well online. People love them. They love arguing with yeah. them. I get tons of readers commenting saying like you left off blah 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 and i'm like no i, I didn't leave him off i just decided he wasn't cool enough so, uh, <laughs> so did you uh, we're a little past this i mean uh, the, this episode probably won't come out until the early part of mid part of february so it'll be a little past it by then but did you watch uh fat man mel gibson's uh um take on santa claus sort no, of the... i really wanted to i i I didn't know it was coming out until it was already out. So if I had known that that was, was on the horizon, I would have had asked Variety to repackage the Killer Santa Claus article that I did and yep. add, and you can, a lot of times with this kind of content, they call it evergreen content. It's just, you can always pull it out. The next time there's a uh, Billy Bob Thornton does Bad Santa 3, they can <clears throat> pull out my creepiest Santa Claus article and 
repackage it uh, with a new intro about Billy Bob Thornton. So we could have done that for Fat Man. I didn't see that movie. I really wanted to. <clears throat> I know Mel Gibson is a obviously a hugely controversial figure. I still have an affection for him, as you probably do from the good old days. I mean, the guy is a legend for a reason. His his early films, there's nobody more charismatic on screen than he was. He's had his troubles, clearly. But um, I still kind of root for the dude. He he did a movie a couple years ago called Blood Father that sounds really stupid, the title Blood Father, but man, is that a good movie. you got to look out for that one. Really? Yeah, you'll uh, love so, it. So, you know... I- I thought so. I guess it was probably a 40 60 split um, against Fat Man. There was a lot of criticism about how, you know, they really didn't, they could have done so much more with it. And I can see that. You know, I mean, Walton Goggins, love that guy. Yeah. Um, really think he's underrated, but maybe not so much anymore. And like, and again, you know, sort of the, the beleaguered, haggard, you know, emotionally tired character that is actually Mel Gibson manifested in the in the character of Santa Claus. That seemed like a perfect fit, and I, and so I was like, ah, you know what? I'm just not going to go with the critics on this one. I want to. I, I got to check this out. It seems, and and they, of course they said, oh, it's one of those movies where if you see the trailer, you've seen everything great about it, but all the rest is it. And I didn't find that it's worth seeing. It was really, I thought it was pretty good. I get it. I get they could have probably done a lot more with it. Um, but yeah, I, I thought for sure. As a matter of fact, I think Christina and I were like, oh, I bet Matt loved this, you know? So I'm surprised I'm you didn't see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a question. Right, on, 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 your rec- on your recommendation, I'll definitely check that one out. So what is, <laughs> so a lot, it seems like there's been, over the past few years, more Santa-centric movies that are trying to delve into the historical roots because Santa was didn't start mm-hmm. as this oh it's fun guy giving out gifts I mean there was a little bit more of like some violence and uh kind of right oh uh, yeah uh, just like all of those early folk tales and fairy tales that if you trace their roots back to the earliest times or the uh, where they first started coming out they're always far more disturbing than they get cleaned up and commercialized and we get the friendly coca-cola versions of these characters when if you go back to the old country those stories are grim. I mean, they come from the Brothers Grimm. They're mm. freaky little like, <laughs> oh, fables yeah. that were designed to scare people into submission. If you, yeah. so, And Santa is full of that. There's a lot of dark magic going on around that character, a lot of weird legendary kind of stuff that, that filmmakers these days have started to explore more. You get movies like Krampus mm-hmm. coming out or weird little... Um, there was one called... Oh, I forget the one. It was like a Norwegian version of the santa claus myth and it was part horror film part surreal comedy yes that seems to be the norwegian genre is like let's slam all this stuff together did you ever see trolls or troll is the norwegian film same kind of thing it's just this giant oh it was brilliant the one about those giant creatures really wonderful i i put that i think on a list that i did for variety of um the 10 best and five worst found footage films because troll is actually a found footage film it's one of those movies where it's it's shot from the perspective of a group of camera cameramen who sneak into a a game preserve that they've heard about and it turns out that there's actually these giant troll creatures running around so it it functions in a way like the blair witch project did where we're looking at footage shot by the actors yeah it was so good that i put it on that the 10 best uh, found footage films definitely one to look out for. that's very cool and uh, 
at uh, in, in December, we were driving out with the the four of us went out to Wilmington, but we took two, two separate cars. So I sat in the I drove with uh, my youngest Benjamin, and Christine was with Paul. And in that two hour drive, Benjamin and I concocted this. Um, he was asking about Santa, kind of tongue in cheek, and you know we we concocted this uh, this organization called Santa S period. It was an acronym, you know, and it was like this oh seasonal. Uh, seasonal, uh, boy, now I'm not going to remember it. He's going to kill me because I can't remember it, but it was like this bureaucratic organization. Um, <laughs> it just massive. Like we tried to like, like logically articulate how you could pull this thing off, you know? And it's like this fleet of 3000 ships. And then I started introducing like all this army bureaucracy into it and how like the, you know, the captain of the S 25, which is the 25th ship, but it's the, you know, cause the December 25th, they're responsible for just New York city, which is unusual because most are, are regional. And that guy traditionally is the guy that becomes the next clause who they refer to as C. And, and we built this whole thing out. And, um, it was just, it was just, yeah, it was just, it was just this fun, creative exercise wow. in, it was a fun exercise in creativity. But then I started throwing the stuff back at him <laughs> about like how all that stuff works. Oh, and it was just, I can't remember the act acronym though got like two hours just putting that whole thing together and so he, i'm sure he'll bring that up next year too that is exactly the process of pitching a script of coming up with a story i don't know how many times my uh former writing partner and i used to sit around a kernel of an idea gets developed and then somebody starts throwing in that extra little detail and uh, the way you describe that is how those stories are built and then you have to start adding the characters and splitting it up into scenes but what a concept that's a really cool one i love those interesting acronisms that they, they put in there when it's um you know whether it's your santa one or the classic one of course specter from the bond films or these days you oh, get yeah, shield yeah. shield in the marvel film so yeah that's a that's a great idea that's a really oh cool well thing. we'll put that on, we'll put a pin in that we'll come back to that later in the year and i'll give you I'll, I'll have benjamin rattle off all the details and you'll be done you'll be done you'll have that thing will be it'll write itself well, matt I, i've got a i've got a script i'd like to pitch to you right now if you don't mind and just tell me no <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't happen as often as you'd think. I, I know some of my friends. I think they actually like it. I've, I know some writers who will tell people up front or put it on their profile somewhere. Don't uh, doesn't accept pitches from non-union writers or something like that, as though it's like, don't bother me. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, you're practically begging somebody at that point to hit you up with their script <laughs> right. ideas so that you feel important. But yeah. Oh, so man. if anybody ever has one, I'm, I'm always willing to listen. Okay. So I do have a real question here so for you. How did, no, Paul, you're okay. done. You're done. You're done. Give me, I got five <laughs> minutes with Matt here. Shut up. <laughs> what? So what, how did you get into this? Uh, what What's the genesis of Matt Chernoff on this? What was it just did you follow an interest and then turn it into your job? Oh, yeah. What, uh, how'd you get started? Yeah, as a, as a I, I trace it all back to two moments in early childhood. Uh, this this interest that, that I've had since the, the earliest memories that I have has been about these types of films and this kind of world was um, seeing the original King Kong as mm -hmm. a little boy. Uh, 1930s Kong film devastated me. It's still my favorite movie of all time. It's there's no more magical movie than that original Kong. I, I love the 70s version. It's probably my personal favorite because I saw it in the theater when it first premiered in 76, and that made a big impression. But the early one is like uh, 
it's like my version of the Brothers Grimm fairy tale. It's a seminal mm-hmm. moment seeing that movie. And then was come the the other little key to this interest was coming upon a few weeks later a paper Frankenstein mask hidden away in the garage. I didn't know what this thing was, who had it, why it looked so freaky, why it had these scars and was green colored and what the face was all about. So I started asking people about this mask and who was Frankenstein. And you put put the story together. I couldn't tell if it was a real thing that people were talking about or a fictional. I was that young. Those were such hugely impressionable moments in my life that it just cemented my interest in fantasy and weird films and cult movies and odd creatures that I've to the um, exasperation of my girlfriend at times that I still continue every single day, every night. It's like, what are we putting on tonight? Uh, How about Bride of Dracula? You haven't (laughs) seen that one, right? So yeah, it it all comes from there and it's, it's been a a passion since uh, as early as I can remember. That's what, that's what Christine always says. I mean, that's the memory of who Matt Chernoff was in, you know, in junior high and high school was just this incredibly creative guy, like always into that kind of stuff. I mean, that that's their that's their memory of, of you dating all that way back. You know what I mean? It was like it was like, you know, drawn monsters and 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 um, there was some I think there was also I might be remembering this wrong because I've been hit in the head a lot. Um, but. <laughs> But uh, also some fascination with with graveyards, I think, too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, graveyards have been a big thing in my life, too. Um, The first one that, again, made that moment where it's like, this is something. I I kind of like these spaces. Uh, Was being taken by a friend as a teenager to Swan Point Cemetery in Providence, where um, in Rhode Island, where I grew up. And there they took me to H.P. Lovecraft's grave. And I was already a huge... I mean, obviously, as a horror guy, I loved Lovecraft. His books were the the strangest, weirdest, most disturbing novels I'd ever read. So seeing where he was actually buried and how austere that grave is, it's a very simple grave for a guy who's hugely influential. It just has his name and it has his motto, I am Providence. And I, that phrase is so poetic in a way it's such a strange little thing to say that uh, i became really interested in cemeteries at that point it's it's um an interest called taphophilia which is the passion or interest in cemeteries uh, and not from an occupational slang. standpoint more like a a hobbyist this, more like a hobby this is um, we i guess sometimes we're called tombstone tourists who like to uh so have you been to savannah georgia What's that? So have you been to Savannah, Georgia? Uh, yeah, I went to Savannah a couple of years ago for the Savannah Film Festival, and walking around that that city and seeing those historic graveyards right in the middle of of these little squares that they have, you can just walk through them, and you know, they're little, uh, you know, time savers. You can cut through them, but I would just spend so much time there. The the graves are covered in moss. They're so historic and beautiful, and you have to really find what the names were on these, on these, the dates, some of the dates are long gone. They've, they're crumbling and falling apart. They're like the ruins of a graveyard. Yeah. And man, that's a cool place to spend time. Well, it's, it's, I believe Savannah is the most haunted city in the United States. Oh but yeah. There's, there's there, all kinds there's, of videos. One of the of graveyards is right across the street from the, the house where they, 
um, modeled the haunted mansion mm-hmm. in uh, Disneyland after the the original house is right there. It's it's very cool city. It is. Yeah, I had somebody ask me the other day. Well, I think yeah, I can't remember who it was, but uh, they're considering moving out to the East Coast. And they said, "Hey, what do you think about Savannah? You think I'd, you think Savannah would be a good place to to move?" And I said, "No, I've got friends that live in Savannah. Savannah apparently is a great place to live or to visit, but not to live. <laughs> I don't think it has anything mm. to do with the haunting." But, uh, yeah, so it seems to be one of these places a lot of people love to visit. But if you live there, well, I don't know. I mean, there there are strange vibes, and I'm sure you pick up on this stuff because if you have an interest in this. Uh, like when I would go to – I don't know if you've ever been to Rome, Georgia. I honestly don't know why you would have been mm-hmm. to Rome, Georgia. But that's the small liberal arts school called Berry College where I went to – did my undergrad there. But there's there's a lot of legend about the town being cursed because of its history and whatnot. Hmm. And there's a really interesting thing. When you would pass into the was that county before limits, or after you showed up as an undergrad? I'm oh, going to say after. No, no, it was definitely after. I didn't want to go there yet, but since you pulled it out, thanks. Yeah, but uh, yeah. once I crossed over the county line, you could just feel like a difference in the energy of the place. It just felt heavy. There's, there's the curse that apparently has been put on this town is that the firstborn sons of anybody who's in that town will never leave. And if they do go, they always come back. And every everybody I've met in Rome, now, of course, this is completely, you know, there's no real data that I can use to back this up. But that, it was just a really weird place. It was a bizarre place. It just felt like there's this heaviness to it. A lot of haunted stuff there, weird history, weird past. But do you, do you notice that when you travel around, when you go to these different places? Yeah. I mean, not so much maybe the cities or the larger area. But definitely when I go into certain buildings, hmm. uh, certain you know, a lot of times with these cemetery stuff, when you're walking through, you'll find uh, weird old ruins, like I said, or or mausoleums that haven't been taken care of for very long. Or or even if if you're um, sometimes we'll when we're uh, doing open houses here in L.A. and we'll go into weird little houses that are falling down and you want to maybe make a, a bid on them and try to get that that property for to fix it up a little bit. Walking into spaces like that, that's where I pick up on mm. those vibes that you're talking about, where it's almost like if those walls can talk, yeah. the air in the place starts feeling different than the air in other places. I don't know if it's I don't put a lot of stock in supernatural mumbo jumbo. I'm fascinated by it, but it's not something I necessarily believe in at all. But I do think there's something to those vibes you get when you walk into a certain place. Um, yeah, it's it's an uncanny feeling that uh, that sends a, a uh, sort of a pleasurable, creepy shiver down your spine. <laughs> I, I do enjoy that. I love it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. I I do. I think. Uh... I've always been sensitive, and I say sensitive to that stuff. It's not like I'm walking around with one of those uh, those recorders trying to pick up on you know those EVPs right. or anything. no. But I've I've noticed that in different places, there's an energy you walk into, and go oh you know, and, and again you know I'm not talking about busting out crystals and starting to like you know have a seance. You just notice it. You're just aware. So I think it's just it's just being aware of your surroundings and. Um, yeah, you notice I get the difference. That, I get that a lot from um, one of the other things I like to do in L.A. and, and elsewhere is to visit uh, filming locations, places mm-hmm. where films have been shot. And so you're they're usually my favorite movies and I'll stand there and soak up the energy from that area, knowing that however many years ago, 20, 40 years ago, all of these great actors had converged in this one spot with cameras. The entire area was shut down so that they could make this this classic film and just even if it's just a certain uh, scene that somebody walks through 
I love visiting those locations and spending some time just soaking up what that must have been like, feeling the echoes of those actors from so long ago, catching yeah. like what the sound must have been like for them. It's, it's the closest you can get to putting yourself back in time in a way. It's just standing there. You've got a record of what it once looked like in front of you. At least I do when I bring photos to compare how it was then to how it is now. That that little vibe you get from seeing the past while you're standing in the present in the same exact spot that you know John Wayne was or uh, Betty Davis was or somebody like that. It's it's an interesting way to time travel without doing anything. You just kind of uh, soak it up. Yeah, yeah. What was what did you think of the? Um, it was a it was a Tarantino movie that everybody was raving about that harkened back, you know, that reflected Once on Upon a, Time in Hollywood, the nostalgic. Yeah, what did you think of that? It wasn't a, a movie that I really loved. Uh, I know everybody else did. I I worked briefly on the the Oscar campaign for it for the production designer and the costume designer. I wrote their uh, for your consideration booklets that was uh, told the entire story of how they worked on the production design and made the costumes that were then distributed to the Academy voters to kind of get them to win. I think the production designer actually did win, but the movie itself wasn't one of my favorites. It's I, I've only seen it once. I uh, Something about it just didn't really capture my attention. I didn't, I didn't understand. It, it felt like the only people who would really love it were people who were involved in the industry it felt very niche to me like and i didn't yeah. and honestly i don't understand his revisionist endings like i don't know what that's what is that what am i supposed to take from that you know what i mean right. i is am i just supposed to be you know grossly entertained because it's just so different and wild is it was there a message in that i don't know i just didn't yeah i just i mean as you're a guy i mean of all the people that we've ever talked to or that jared and i know you would be the one guy that'd be like, oh, no, well, this is why this was such a great movie. And it's interesting to me, you're like, eh, not so much, because then I'm, maybe I wasn't so misguided on my lack of appreciation of it. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't take away much there. I, I, I'm, I'm not the biggest Leonardo DiCaprio fan. He'll yeah. always look like a little boy to me. <laughs> I, I, his face doesn't have any of that kind of masculine energy to it. He doesn't, he just looks a little too baby-faced still. Even in The Revenant, I was like... I don't know if I buy this. It looks, yeah. just looks like they dirtied him up a bit. It's, I mean, it's hard. It's, you know. No, I, I'm say. with you. I'm with you. Yeah, he he does. He still <laughs> he carries just, that kind of really childlike. Yeah. But yeah, so so having him be one of the main leads in that film just it started off on the wrong foot for me. I I do like Tarantino's movies, but they're not ones I return to over and over again. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, I want to kind of get into a little bit about, you know, all the stuff that you write. You write so much. One of the things, you know, one of the reasons that that um, we enjoy doing the podcast is because there's, you know, there's a lot of creative. It's an outlet for some creativity. Right. And we both, you know, Jared and I like to dabble with creativity. Obviously, I can't I'm not visually creative, like I'm not into colors and all that kind of stuff. But um, but certainly uh more creative writing is, is just mm -hmm. fun for me. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm interested. It seems to me that a lot of your time has been spent or a lot of your expertise has been spent on sort of the technical aspects of, con, you know, of describing things like production. And so how is your, you know, how is your time divided these days? Not maybe not over the course of your career, but like, like 
how is that time divided and where do you prefer to put your time and, you know, kind of leading into what has this year looked like for you, you know, in right. terms of the creative process? And Well, I'm a, a member of the gig economy uh, where it's co cobbling together enough smaller freelance writing assignments that it forms one larger writing career. So that's the way it's been. And, and it comes comes and goes so during the screenwriting period of my life when I was you know, having a lot of movies made. Uh, I was writing a, even more. I was writing more films than were actually getting made. So that was a, a busy, busy time. Uh, and having those films made was was really exciting. And uh, that became an all encompassing time in my life. That was it was just about screenwriting. And then after the writer's strike in the um, mid 2000s or, or, or thereabouts or the 2010 or around there, uh, things just kind of changed. I wasn't into writing anymore. The, the industry changed how you could break in as a screenwriter. Everything seemed to um, turn on a dime on that that writer's strike. So after that, I transitioned more into writing about films. And then that became writing about other things, content writing about uh, travel and about food and about uh, lifestyle. And then it the production note area came in, so now I'm doing some of that. But it's it's all it's a mixing all of them. So it's changing hats depending on the project is kind of fun. It keeps things lively. You don't just get bogged down in one subject constantly. Suddenly you're writing about uh, you know, the ten best places to go bungee jumping in Brazil for uh, you know United Airlines. I'll do a piece for them, and then the next day you're interviewing uh, you know somebody else about a film that they have coming up or preparing notes for um, another person's project or doing synopsises. All those synopsises you read on in, in, I guess nobody reads TV guide anymore, but when you see them on the guide um, or, or you're flipping through Netflix and it'll have that little blurb that lets you know what the film is about. I do tons of those for films where it's, you know, you have to sell it within two or three sentences max and get somebody interested in watching that so it's, it's cobbling together. I think the year is going to look a lot like that for me. Uh, switching assignments on on the fly, trying to hustle to get other assignments, looking for areas of, of content that I haven't exploited yet, that I haven't really researched enough that might be lucrative or, or interesting to me. It's going to be a lot of that, which is which is fun right now. Do you go through like ebbs and flows of energy into it? Because sometimes, and you know, Jared and I were kind of going back and forth. I kind of been on my ass trying to get some stuff done for the podcast, and it's just it's just like for a minute you get you get it's obviously it's hard. It's hard to you know just constantly be coming up with new creative ideas. You want to be repetitive. You want to say thing over and over again. But definitely, you know, there's like energy ebbs and flows that I go through when I'm like like some days I just want to sit there and I'll, I'll start cracking out stuff and it just comes and it's. You know, I'll get it all done in one day and then and I'll go days and days. And I just I, I open it and I'm just it's just not there. I mean, how do you kind of navigate that? Oh, yeah, that's I mean, you described it perfectly. That's that's a hard thing to deal with. Uh, I'm able to um, soldier on through. I, I, I don't get very um, distracted easily. I'm not somebody uh, I'm, a lot of writers, I think, do that procrastination thing where they'll they'll they know that they have to work on something and then suddenly they just need to check this other thing first and they yeah. need to do this and they have to put that off. I'm one of the, the things I know I can do well is laser focus onto that one task. Everything else around me sort of 
blurs and sound kind of gets quiet and it just goes tunnel vision into this project. It's not something I love doing. I'm not a person who loves writing. I've written for years and years. Really? No, I, when I hear people talk about other writers expound on, I love words. <laughs> I, I had somebody tell me that. I love words. I was like, you do? It's like, does the gardener say like, or does your carpenter say, I love nails. They're so <laughs> wonderful. Like, no, it's a puzzle to solve. Every writing assignment I feel like is there's a way it's supposed to look. There's a way these sentences are supposed to be crafted to get across the point that whoever's hired me to work on this, or if it's something that I'm that I'm doing on my own, something I want to get across, it's trying to fit those words Jenga style into the proper order to get that point across. So it's like doing a Rubik's Cube, every project that I work on. So that keeps that that energy going because I know there's a solution there and if I order those sentences correctly and those words correctly, they'll they'll pop into place and suddenly you feel like that's the point. Like, oh, I nailed it. Move on to the next one. So that helps keep that energy going. But, but I know what you mean. There are doldrums there that you get into where you're just like, you can't summon the magic anymore. You have to step away from it, maybe cleanse your palate and come back at it from a different angle. You, you develop coping skills for that little tricks that you found that that freed you up before that if you do that again if you take that extra little break and go for that walk and if you come back and maybe sit in a different place when you tackle it it frees it up so you have to you develop what works for you but i i know exactly what, you're, what you mean but... I, I can't imagine having to take the extra step of trying to apply that art to somebody else's message like that to me is the is the is the discipline and the skill and the magic. Like once I write something, I'm like, no, that's good because that's the way I wrote it. It's fine. You know what I mean? Like I, I have a, a you know a lot of trouble with. It. I can't imagine taking somebody else's thoughts and their message and like and doing it on their behalf to their session. You know what I mean that's yeah? It's like not an original idea. If it's an original idea. That's something else. You know what I mean? Well, you know, I think the problem too is that. So I've been creating since I was you know since I was a kid. I mean that's. Uh, music, all that. Of course, I can't read any music, but I've been composing since I was in the eighth grade. So most of the stuff that I've written, I've forgotten. I have no idea how to go back to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the story of my life here. But uh, even in the work that I do professionally, right, as a futurist, I mean, a lot of it mm-hmm. is the creative side of, of, of extracting potential implications of how things here today will impact multiple facets of society. It's a very creative process. So you're creating a story, a three-dimensional story around what the future might look like so that you can make better decisions today. It's fascinating. Uh, some of the best sci-fi writers were futurists before, and then they realized no oh, one was yeah. paying attention to their, their academic work, and they said, well, I'm going to write sci-fi. So maybe that's the direction I need to start going, and, and, and Paul and I will we'll be inspired after this show, and we'll start writing books and screenplays. But what I found uh, is that that procrastination and I could be wrong on this, but my guess is, just from my own observations, is that it's because we attach so much of the emotional high, that adrenaline rush, to the creative process. And we start to say, well, if that's not there, then uh, then I can't possibly create. What I found is, um, like you said, I really like you said, soldiering on. I've had to try and teach myself to do that. Because it usually only takes a few minutes of me sitting there and finally surrendering and saying, no, this is, remove the emotions from it. And start to look at this as you are going through this process. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, but a lot of times it does. It's just a small little breakthrough. 
But if you allow that attention deficit to go, no, no, I need to go check this over here because maybe that will give me the adrenaline rush I'm looking for. Or maybe I'll procrastinate because that gives me the adrenaline rush. And then I get really creative because you've run out of time completely. So you have to get it wrapped up. It's this weird thing, I think, of introspection and realizing, oh, this is all chemical. That's what it is. And if I can realize that, then maybe I can put that aside and say, I'm just going to go and, and push through. Because nine times out of ten, I can push through. And then finally there it starts flowing. And you've been able to successfully block everything else out. I don't know. Do you, do you find that to be the case? Definitely. That's that's what it is. It's it's finding that moment. Um, yeah. And as far as as far as working on other people's stuff, in some ways, it's easier to do what you just said when it's somebody else's assignment that you're working on or somebody yeah. else's end product that you're working on because you're divorced in a way from that personal feeling like I'm expressing myself. Yeah. Or, that was a little scary with the screenplays because these were stories that I was writing that meant something to me. They were a lot of times original stories that, that uh, spec scripts, they call them, that we were doing. And, and when, when that gets, when you think that that might get rejected down the line, that can be a little scary to, to keep moving forward. Is this going to be right? Or is, you start second guessing yourself. When it comes to writing for other people's products, I don't have that. Uh, you kind of listen to what they're saying, the tone in their voice, some key words that they've dropped here and there. You almost have to quickly on the fly psychoanalyze them what are they really looking for are they do they feel like they're downers do they feel like they're hyper do they feel and then you kind of craft your your end result to fit what that person might like so that's that's even easier to, to write on these other people's stuff but i know exactly what you mean about trying to find that that right moment that chemical moment when it's uh, snaps into place and you can you can just hit it right yeah, but you realize, as you clearly said, you don't always, you're not always going to have that. And so you right. have to push on through. Like you said, you have to soldier on and you just have to sit there almost a little bit longer and say, okay, I'm going to stop fighting it and just mm -hmm. I'm, and be more committed to I'm going to burn through this. It's also helpful in those instances I find lately to do everything out of order at that point. When you start mm -hmm. feeling like, oh, my God, I'm all stuck here and I just don't know, I – Nine times out of ten, I'm at that point. I realize that's because I'm starting at the beginning. I'm trying to to go from this. What's the first couple of ideas I want to get down? How it'll flow and doing in linear order. At that point, the best thing to do is, I know how it's supposed to end, so I'll write the ending first. And I know that somewhere in here, I want to say this one quote. I want to hit this concept, so I'll write that down. And then you start putting them where they should be on the page. And then the the intro starts happening. So you not being beholden to that kind of A to B to C to D frees you up. It's another little technique that you can sometimes pull out. The more of these techniques you have, the quicker you can get yourself out of trouble. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. Do you so Matt? Do you ever have? I don't know quite how to how to how to frame this, but with all the you know with all the knowledge and experience you have with writing, because what you're describing is very. It's very counterintuitive. Like, that would be hard for me to do. Like, you know, especially with my background, you know, we're very technical writing and, you know, everything's from A to Z and executive, you know, executive summaries. And so the process you're describing would be very challenging for me. So are you ever able to, like, do you do any kind of coaching or teaching? Are there, like, young writers that, is that how that community works? Or is it not really, is it not really open to that? Because, um, I mean, it seems like, you really know a lot about this stuff, you know. I would think people would be 
would be very interested in, in, in learning from you how to be better writers. I just didn't know if that's something that, you you know, naturally occurs. It's not something I've done so far. I mean, on individual basis I'll meet a, a writer who finds out, oh, you wrote that miniseries about the killer sharks. Uh, hey, do you want, do you want to have lunch? And then, and then you sort of pick their brain and give them little bits of advice or stuff you've learned along the way that might help down the line. But aside from handfuls of moments there or somebody might bring me their script and, and ask, could you read this over? And I'll give them in the, in those cases I do love to really dive in and give them whatever minor knowledge I've picked up along the way I'll try to pass that along to them what works for me it doesn't always work for everybody but but I haven't done it in any uh, like career kind of concept or but it, it's an interesting one it's a lot of a lot of writers are transitioning to teaching and teaching other writers what they've learned and passing on their skills so that might be something down the line that I would I would think about did you see, um, have you watched uh, Barry? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is um, a good show. Bill Hader's uh, uh, <laughs> series on Netflix? I haven't. I know about it. I know that people have loved that show. And he's fantastic. I mean, what a talent that guy is. And Oh, I guess my the, God. Yeah. I know I'm, I'm wrong here because everybody I respect loves that show. So clearly that's the thing. I'm at the point where I am so over Hitman stories. <laughs> And especially these counterintuitive hitman stories where he's he's a hitman, but he's also this. Like we saw Gross Point Blank years ago with John Cusack. This is not a new concept, the hitman who wants to, you know, have this other. I mean, if you go by movies and TV, like the most booming career is hitman. Everybody's a hitman. So I kind of got burned out on that concept. I know it's not necessarily a hitman show. Clearly, it's it's a it has other things on its mind. But that concept has made it a little difficult for me to dive into it. But uh, eventually, I will because it's supposed to be just brilliant. And, yeah, and it's on HBO I mean, though, I, isn't it? HBO, not Netflix. Uh, okay, it? I think I it think is. It started there. Maybe it, maybe it moved it have also. Moved, yeah, I don't remember. I can't keep track of what platform we watch stuff on. But but you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not someone who's like enamored with the craft of acting i'm like give me a break man you know kind of thing but i will tell you this watching him acting about acting it was unbelievable <laughs> like i give that guy credit it was phenomenal like i did that i mean vastly i don't know how well he's rated but my guess is he's wildly underrated because what i what you see him do in that that yeah you you really really like it i get it and i'm with you 100 percent the hitman played out, man. Like right. you're right. It's like that's 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 a perfect. Like if you had to make an industry assessment based on movies, the number one growing profession is hitman. You're right, but it doesn't it doesn't feel overdone and it doesn't feel tired in that. So it's definitely worth. So you got two now, Santa and Hitman. You can put those on your list. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, they're was, on there. Definitely. Batman. Batman. Yeah. Batman and and yeah. So so what's the so still talking about kind of creative process stuff? What is What's been the impact to how you guys operate? I mean, it seems to me stuff has been pretty virtual for you anyway. You can always transfer writing through email and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But has it had a? Is it been? Is it been a benefit? Has it been a drain? What's been the? I know LA is a, a disaster. I got yeah. buddies out there, and they're like they're ready to they're ready to jump off a bridge um, because you know there's just nothing because it's just really just not a lot going on. They feel very isolated. But yeah, what about, hasn't, for, you know, for your profession and you? This virtual stuff is, has it's made it, in a way, 
uh, it's hard to even notice the change as a writer. Everything was already done through emailing editors. Uh, there's very few times where I would actually be in a room with whoever's commissioned whatever I'm writing. It was mostly to sign a contract or two or to, um, you know, that intro meeting when you want to feel each other out. Are we going to be able to spend the next year working on a project together? Uh, do we, are we going to get along? Uh, you you kind of need to know that early on in the process. So being in, in person with somebody really helps there. That's not what I'm doing lately, that kind of pitching. So so this pandemic hasn't really changed the writing process for me very much. It was already just sending out articles, sending out inquiries or pitch letters or, or um, so in a way it, it hasn't, hasn't affected much uh, on my end. It's also um, freed up a lot of time that, uh, that is, it's, it's been able to um, all of these cemetery trips have really kind of helped spark some creative ideas in me. That, that might turn up later on in a few years. But um, overall, the pandemic hasn't been a, a problem for me that way. LA has been kind of creepy. It's been a little bit of an apocalyptic vibe here at times. And then it becomes really quiet and it doesn't, and you, you wonder, has anything changed? Are we still in the middle of this thing or it's deceptively quiet? <clears throat> but as far as the writing goes now, this, this has not been much of a wrinkle. So when did you so when did you kick off um, how the West was cast? Was that I don't know the the start date on that. That um, I first started getting the idea to do that show back in December, right before all of this chaos started happening. I had been working with the James Bond podcast for a, uh, a couple of years, more or less writing articles for their website and lining up guests for them through my variety connections and other connections. I was able to pull in some quote unquote celebs and people who were had something to do with the Bond universe. So I was able to bring guests to the show and sort of do little um, uh, go as act as a go between between the podcast and the entertainment industry. And then I started deciding, like, I wanted to do one on my own, my own show. And you look around to friends that you have, experts that, you know, and I realized I had this friend of mine, Andrew, uh, who's a film professor and uh uh, he's on the board of the John Wayne Birthplace Museum. The guy is a, the expert on Westerns, written several critically acclaimed books on the genre. So I hit him up. Do you want to go in on this podcast idea with me? Would that be something you'd be interested in? And he was all in. So he's the secret weapon, I think, on the show. He's the brains of the operation. I push the buttons and make the show look sound good and add the clips. And I come at it from a fan's perspective when we talk about films more of the goofy film lover. He's the egghead part of the, the partnership. And that Batman Robo, Robin combo really works for this show. It's um, Westerns are, are a, a genre that I just really love. And especially in the time of the pandemic, they're such a nice escape. They're simpler times. They're about trying to survive difficult environments. They're about self-reliance, uh, about individualism, about pushing on through whether it's these wagon train movies or they're all about overcoming these obstacles both physical and psychological so they've been a, an interesting way to spend time during this particular period in history okay so <clears throat> doctor gives you some bad news you got two hours left to live you got and you got two vhs tapes available to you good the bad and the ugly or the unforgiven 
which one gets popped in? A lot of those. Um, I'll go with Unforgiven. Yeah, I'm with you. God, I mean, I love good. good, the bad, and the ugly is brilliant. I out of those Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns, I'm more of a fan of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. I feel like that movie is haunting in a way that Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is excellent. One of the, probably the best of that Clint Eastwood trilogy. But if you really want to step out of that trilogy, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, where which he isn't in, but with but which Leone directed, is an opera. It's a masterpiece. It's um, there's nothing else like that movie. It, it has every aspect of the Western is somewhere in that film. It's uh, a catalog of the greatest hits of the Westerns, but it never feels like a stunt. It's its own things. But Unforgiven, that's its own poetic. I mean, there's there's nothing like Unforgiven. It's one of the, the most tragic films there is. It's, um, yeah, it's deeply affecting. So I, I would go with Unforgiven. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's definitely on the um, on the top on the top of my list. I mean, I love westerns. Certainly not as knowledgeable or as you know. I don't. I don't have the 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 deep love that drives that knowledge that you have of the movies. Uh, but boy, that was on the other day. And uh, you know, the beauty of YouTube TV, I could set that thing up to tape something anytime. And I don't remember what the circumstances were. But I was like, oh, I'm putting that on because it's just it is. You know, poetic is a great description of it. But what are the so? I mean. The great podcast. What are, so? What are the you know? What are the, the kind of the aside from the Unforgiven, the modern westerns that have actually risen to the level of appreciation hmm. that the old westerns could uh, in their heyday. It's hard. The modern westerns. I mean, of course, we don't get many of them these days. You're right. lucky if you get you're lucky if you get one western a year. Um, so there aren't a lot of them. But um, and the ones that we do get tend to be prestige westerns like hostiles with christian bale where they're almost yeah. oscar caliber movies instead of the old days where we'd get b westerns that would just be fun action films one of the ones i'd recommend these days to people if they really want to see a, a modern western that feels like a classic western would be this movie the ballad of lefty brown with bill pullman and it, it takes the oh. concept of um what would happen if in the opening act of a film of a classic western the hero gets shot john wayne dies and it's up to the sidekick his grizzled old coot who's usually the comic relief in those classic films what if he had to step up and avenge the the hero of the movie so it takes that great concept and and just runs with it it's a really terrific movie bill pullman's performance i mean he's always a great actor and he's this is one of his signature roles now. Uh, we interviewed the director, Jared Moshe, this really young guy who knows, he's forgotten more about the Western than I even know. So he's a, a, a force to be reckoned with in film right now when it comes to Westerns. This was his second Western. He told us on the podcast that he's got a concept already in place for a third one. So I don't know any director these days who's made three Westerns. According to Quentin Tarantino, you're not an actual Western director until you've made three Westerns. I think Tarantino now has made two, Django and um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Hateful Eight. So the classic directors like John Ford or Howard Hawks made three or more Westerns. So Jared Moshe is on his way. Definitely check out Ballad of Lefty Brown. I think that's on Netflix. That's It's well worth watching. Do you think, do you think this... Do you think theaters are gonna are gonna come back? 
you think they, they're hard dead question. yeah it's it's hard to hard to say it's it's all fluid right now no anybody who tells you what they what's going to happen is yes and they're just making it up at this point anything could could happen i don't know how it's going to to shake out but um i don't think it's dead i don't know if it'll look the same i imagine the the forces behind this the money behind it will try to make it look the same uh, how that plays out i mean it was already on the down word slope anyway before all of this it was already hard to compete with streaming and 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 uh box office revenue was was sinking and the films that were being made were fewer and farther between and there were all these spectacle movies instead of smaller films so it's hard to say how what kind of impact it it had it's it's been devastating for the people who work in theaters that's where where my heart goes out to there's a lot of people who lost their jobs there but um, I don't. I think it's too soon to say whether it's it's dead or not. I I wouldn't think that it's just going to go away. I'd like to convince myself. I'd like to believe that there's just no way that could happen because you cannot replicate that experience, right? The sound, the sight. You just can't do it. But you know, if you get a generation raised on streaming small screen stuff, then you know they're watching movies on their phone while watching it on a you know 72 inch screen in the living room is amazing. You know, mm-hmm. but that there's no in my mind. I, you know, my, like I said, half tongue in cheek, you know, my memory is, I don't have a great memory um, of things when I was young, but I absolutely 100% remember that we took a school trip. We got on a bus on like official school time to go see Star Wars as a field trip. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, uh, and uh, as a testament to the quality of my education, uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like, I can't imagine, um, and, and I know it's not like, uh, it's not, the movie experience isn't what it used to be in terms of the formality of it and how people, like, you know, when people wax nostalgic about the movie going experience and everybody getting dressed up to go, and I get that, whatever, that can that can go to the wayside. Um, but, you know, being immersed in that, in that, in that, uh, that kind of that overwhelming the senses with all of it, um, I just I can't imagine that that would go away, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think my kids would probably care one way or the I other. They think, love the movies too, but yeah, I don't think they care. I think it's um, like exactly what you said. People have been each audience brings a a new way that they want to view films, and TV changed a lot of the way people saw films, of course. And these days, I just don't think that that experience feels. Uh, relevant to uh, to the younger generation the the going to a theater now would i think for them seems like going to um you know see one of those imax shorts at uh an amusement park it's like this weird little thing you do but to sit there for two hours and watch a movie without your phone on it's just going to be baffling to the to uh people being born now they're they're gonna have no concept of what that is so its days are ultimately numbered i think anybody who says oh no there'll always be room for it it'll be smaller and smaller and smaller but, yeah yeah you know um you know there's another i thought underrated movie um i don't know if you've ever seen it or what you think of it was the majestic with um with uh um oh, uh, okay. uh jim carrey yeah with jim carrey yeah, yeah, Frank Darabont's was, movie. Know. Yeah, it's a really sweet movie. It's a, a very yeah. one of the one of those great movies about movies, which is another yeah, exactly. thing you're not supposed to write about anymore, like Hitman. Yeah. Nobody really cares about people making movies. 
uh, you don't want to there's already been too many of those but that's a good one that that one is a good yeah one. but it was more about again it was more about the experience of movie right. going i about mean well feet. that wasn't i mean obviously there's so much more to it than that but they really captured i thought you know kind of the oldie time appeal of i mean centered around that you know around that experience i thought they did a really good job with that another one that i thought was kind of underrated uh, but i'm an expert but yeah that one kind of got lost in the shuffle there i think people that was at his the height of his career so there was a lot everybody expected another dumb and dumber or another ace venture and this is when he was trying to branch out as a serious actor <laughs> <laughs> but but if you if you were a fan of in living color like he's still so right. hard to get over far marshall bill like I, I can't see past that i mean he is a talented Classic. guy yeah. but oh yeah, yeah. That, i mean and and the other part about about the difference now too is that you know, when we were growing up, we're all the same age. Well, Jared's no, no, I'm kind a lot of a young, punk, way but, younger you know, than you, Paul. You were way trailing behind us a little bit. But was the you know was um, when the movie came out, that was it, man. You had a couple of choices. Right. Now it's like the hardest thing to do is to choose what to watch. It's just so it's just so much. It's so prolific. You know, they're constantly putting new stuff out, and the way you consume stuff completely different. The idea that you'll watch a show once a week and wait for it to come out the next week and do that for like years on end to be invested in it. So um, the uh, w probably one of our favorite shows of all time was Justified. Mm -hmm. Timothy Oliphant was the, uh, 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 we love that show. And I think it was because one of the reasons that we loved it so much was we were living in Kentucky at the time that it came out and it was, it was on FX and it was released in traditional format. So it came out, it had a season, came out once a week. And so we, you know, we watched it for literally five or seven years, right? When you invest in something like that is completely different than if you binge right. watch something in a week. You're, so you're we, we watched right. it. Yeah, we watched it recently and it every, and you know, we were watching it like every night and every time we got to a point, we we're like, wow, that happened in the first season because for us it was, you know, it was years in the making. So the way that you take stuff in is even completely different. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, that's. Um, uh, I think that weekly, week to week thing is going away. Nobody wants that anymore. Uh, people get people get angry when they realize they can't watch the whole show in one one bite. But but the Ugh. outside of Netflix though, the other providers like Disney Plus, uh, HBO, um, even Amazon, they're doing it week to week. They'll release. They, yeah. Huh. Yeah, we've been noticing at least the shows that we enjoy watching. There's one on Amazon I really enjoy watching. I, I enjoy sci-fi. I think 80% of sci-fi is garbage. So again, this mm -hmm. is at least in my own critical way of thinking. I'm thinking, how on earth did they arrive at that future conclusion? There's no explanation of it. All of a sudden, they're just from here and then, you know, flying around in space with. <laughs> but yeah, one that's done right. really, really, really well, I think, is The Expanse. And I think it's just a. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh. I read the first book in that series, uh, and it's wonderful. Yeah, uh, we've got yeah, the books. We, we we got onto the series before knowing about the books, and then um, uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Glenn uh, Heemstra, he said, "You got to get the books," and I had no idea. And so we finally got those. We're going to jump into it, but you know, we'll, we'll get around to it. It's so much easier and lazier just to keep watching the show. But they do an amazing job of of uh, of realism. So you, you can uh, believe the situation. The you know it's it's really good to check out. But that one they release week to week. Um, huh. HBO does that with all their stuff week to week. So I don't know. I maybe you know with Netflix, um, 
they they release it a season at a time, but there does seem to be mm-hmm. this pushback of we're going to release it. So I, I have no idea. I, I kind of enjoy that, not having yeah, the option to keep binging. Yeah, that's the way I like to do the Walking Dead. I'm, oh, I've been on yeah. that since the very beginning. And uh, yeah, the week-to-week works there. It builds up suspense in now, between did you write anticipation. On that did, did you no, write on that show? I wish. Oh, my I, God. That is a I masterpiece. Doing, uh, I did um, a list for Variety or during the pandemic of the 30 best episodes of that series. That okay. was a fun Okay, let's talk do. about it. Paul, have you seen the show? So we we got really into it. Oh, actually, guys, can I? Um, I have to get a power cable. My computer's about to... Uh, yeah, go yeah, for it. Yeah, okay. yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Oh, you're good. No, 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 no problem. No problem. Yeah. So, Paul, have you seen the show? Yeah. Um, and I'll and I'll yeah. and I'll break it down again. We got really into, um, we got really into uh, the show for about I want to say four seasons. You, I'm sure Matt will be able to tell me exactly. We got to the episode where we, the episode just before. They cut off the old man's head outside the jail when they were in the jail. Mm. That was their like safe area. It was the episode just before that that we stopped watching, and then for whatever reason, we just kind of didn't go back to it. I just we lost interest, or but I mean, I think that's still going. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always a season behind because it's on. Uh, we'll wait for Matt here. He'll tell us. Yeah, make a note of the time for this one, too. Nah, we're just going to let it ride. <laughs> no, God, no. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, 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 ask the, you ask the question again. Ask my Yeah, yeah. So, there. I was asking you that uh, you were starting to say that you had, you had seen the show, or I'd asked you if you've seen the show, and then when, when Matt stepped off, you were uh, saying that you had started it, but you didn't get very far. Yeah. Right, so Matt, you can probably tell me exactly when I stopped watching because we got really into it, and the acting was awesome, and we really the characters, you know, the really good character development. So, um, so we really enjoyed it, and then for some reason we just kind of I don't know something we got interrupted, and then we just never never went back to it. But the last episode we saw, and I knew because I was kind of looking ahead to see what was next. I was reading Wiki, you know, Wikipedia, just before the original old man. What was his name from the farm? Oh, Herschel? Yeah. Yeah. Just before yeah. Herschel had his head cut off yeah, from back in that day. the mayor guy. Yeah, the okay, governor. The episode just before that, when they were sitting outside the jail, was the last episode we saw. So if I had watched the next episode, I would have seen his head get cut off. And then so but we didn't we just never got back to it. But I was just saying to Jared, that show's still going, right? They're still creating new shows. They still are. They're well, the original show, The Walking Dead. I think it has one more season to go and then they're wrapping it up mm-hmm. and they're going to relaunch it as the walking dead, something or other. I think there's two of the characters are going to be spinning off, but there's oh, already cool. at least two spinoffs. There's already the fear of the walking dead and walking dead world beyond. And now there's going to be walking dead, Carol and Daryl, those two characters, they're pairing off and sending them off on adventures. Uh, I was reading the comic books from the very first issue long before there was any talk of a TV series. And I thought that was such a great story. So when they developed it into a show, it was you know, everything I wanted. I've been on board since. Uh, it's one of those few shows that I, I watch over and over. Episodes like three times, four times. I'll keep going back to it. I don't know. I hear people say that they think it's it's fallen in quality, and maybe it has. I don't 
personally, I love every minute of it. I mean, there are good episodes and bad episodes, but picking the 30 top ones for variety was was tricky. Uh, there's some in there that I, you can't put them all at number one, which was hard, but uh, it was funny too, because you put together a list like this, and of course you get readers saying, whoever wrote this obviously has never seen the show. That's not <laughs> the best episode. The best episode is this one. I'm like, you idiots. What do you mean I've never seen the show? I've interviewed the actors. I know this show intimately. <laughs> so what did you rank as number one? Number one was the easiest choice. It's The Grove. It's an episode called The Grove. And it's uh, Carol. It's the famous one where Carol uh, shoots a little girl um, who's who's kind of lost her moral compass in the apocalypse, who's no longer a sane little girl. And she realizes it's, it's almost like a version of, of Mice and Men where, you know, Lenny and the rabbits, for his own sake, for the sake of the community, has to die. Hmm. And it's that same kind of mercy killing in a way. A huge, incredibly powerful story. It could, it, it almost could, you could strip the zombie stuff out and put it in the New Yorker as a short piece of fiction and it would be really moving. So that episode I think was brilliant. But then you get... I think number two, I forget which one I put there, but the next one is all action. It's just a pure balls out, combat, death, explosions. And then you go to another quiet character episode. There's so many ways to, to parse that series out. I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated by, by how they keep do, bring such high quality each week. It's great. Well, you know what I loved about that is that uh, you know, the first season, the zombies were on the forefront, right? But then right. by season two, the zombies were just a, they're just background really like and they and they continue to be that way and the depth of the show and how you watch the evolution of the characters and because you're right it's hard I, it's very few shows can do it right where they're not just dragging it on and on and you're like you should have ended this two seasons ago they continue right. to find new ways for those characters to evolve and you see them like you know you you think of them as heroes and then at a certain point in time the heroes become the villains and vice versa oh, yeah. like the whole transition of negan right like at a certain point you find yourself going like oh i kind of sympathize with this guy like he's not all that bad oh wait but but we forget what he did you know and you just find the complexity of of human beings throughout which i think it just does a really interesting dive on human nature and yeah it's it's that's a phenomenal show yeah it's the way you talk about negan is is dead on he's um and you think about the people in your life that you know who have done some terrible things or done some really screwed up things but then you realize there's more to them than that nobody's defined by that one thing uh, if they are then maybe your judge your snap judgment is is not where it should be and that film i mean that tv series definitely points that out that nobody's going to always be the hero nobody's always going to be the villain there's a lot more to everybody um so how do you judge a person uh, it brings up a lot of different issues and, and negan's a fascinating oh, character he's, he's a brilliantly yeah, played we certainly, we certainly seem to be losing our appreciation for redemption you know oh, and that yeah. right the, this yeah. I, you know the idea that uh, you know, one person's, you know, one mistake and that defines somebody. Right. Um, which, I mean, I mean, you, you are in the epicenter. You're at ground zero for some of that. Right. I mean, the minute somebody does something even remotely, um, you know, counter to the, the, the current, I don't want to say outrage, that's too simplistic, but, you know, you know, to, to what people might be railing against and then then they're done. 
it's like, well, that's it. You made that one mistake, and it's unconscionable, and you can never come back from that. It's like, eh, I mean, boy, really? I'm pretty sure cliches are cliche for a reason, and people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones is probably a pretty good one because we've yeah. all got – we're all flawed. That's called being a human. Yeah, that's definitely the tenor of the times right now. Um, it's It can be a little tricky to navigate that. We, we see it happen all the time uh, with actors and filmmakers and or, you know some old text gets leaked and suddenly people are their careers are in jeopardy the the counter to that though is that because there's so much of that because everybody's it's become a sport in a way to try to find the next person to you know dig through their stuff and find this oh you said this because of that the the attention span that people give to this stuff is really fast so if you can weather mm. the first couple of weeks, nobody's going to remember. They're on to, there's been, you know, 40 other people who've just been uh, found out and uh, exposed in the meantime. And now you're ancient history and you can kind of circle back again. And so it's, it, it's hard. It, it's um, something everybody's having to deal with now. And even just talking about it on this podcast right now, I'm sure there'll be people listening to it who say like no these people should be gone we we should we don't need it's hard it's hard with the westerns when it when they um every so often everybody wants to whip out the famous interview john wayne gave to playboy magazine back in the 70s which was this like admittedly atrocious comment <laughs> um, and yet um, and you can't do this to everybody. I always want to say, like, look, I've just finished reading a 600-page biography on the man. He was so much more complicated than this one interview that you keep rehashing every decade. This was a that was a blip in time. the The expanse of this man's life is epic. He was born in like what 1903 or something. Like, it's, it's a different world. So why are we <laughs> holding yeah. him to these few comments that a journalist was kind of pulling out of him from Playboy magazine of all places? Like, I don't know. It, it, it's a yeah. it's hard uh, to talk The foundation about. of just in incredibly fair and sound journalism. Yeah. You, did you forget that there are naked ladies on the next page? <laughs> Maybe move on, you know? Like, like come on. <laughs> the, yeah, I got it. It's closed right now because it's being renovated and they're trying to sort it all out. But there's a, uh, there's a special forces museum at Fort Bragg. There is a on uh, there is the handwritten or it might have been hand typed and then signed note from John Wayne to the regiment, um, you know, after the movie. And there's something in there by boy, I, I should know this is my history. This is my profession. I should know this thing by heart. But there's some great line in that thing about, you know, about his compliments to the Green Berets for restoring the manhood of a nation. I mean, it's just a wow. classic. Power. Cla uh, oh, it's fantastic. I'll get a picture of it when I can get back in the museum. I We own it. I mean, where I work now, we own the museum, so I might be able to get in there. If I can, I'll get a picture. Yeah, please do. I would love to see it. He was, I mean, very well-spoken person, a very intelligent guy, a chess expert. and I mean, he's just a, a brilliant man and a huge creative force and, and, these days of this past year has become a somebody I've I've really dug into. So I would love to to see that. I visited his during this whole pandemic. He has a, a beautiful spot. He's right next to Kobe Bryant and his daughter, um, who who really? have an unmarked grave. But Wayne finally, he was unmarked for a long time. But then his sons finally relented and and put a stone in there. They were scared that it would become like 
you know, Jim Morrison's grave and people would turn up there day and night. But, yeah. I saw that in Paris when I was a kid, um, Morrison's oh, grave. You? It was mostly wow. covered with weed. I mean, it was ridiculous. Right. It was just, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, um, it was probably would draw some attention. You, but you, you've crossed paths, I, and I said, we were talking before the podcast, and I might have mentioned to Jared earlier, um, that you've crossed paths and gotten insights on, you know, some, some actors that, you know, revealed a side to them that was really remarkable, I thought. Yeah, and you told that really warm story about, about your experience with Roger Moore. You got you to tell that story. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the benefits of Variety and freelancing for them is that occasionally uh, that name, Variety, pulls some strings in film circles. So on a recent trip that my girlfriend and I took to London, we contacted uh, Pinehurst Studios, where they made all of the early Bond films. It's and They were making Star Wars films there. It's, it's one of the uh, England's biggest film studios, Pinewood. So we got a tour of Pinewood. They don't do public tours of this place, but we mentioned Variety and that we might want to write an article about Pinewood, which is a little bit of a lie, but we wanted to get in there. And so we show up at the, the scheduled time and this lovely older woman shows up in a golf cart at the front of the studio. Get on in, guys. And it's just the two of us and this woman. And she proceeded to take us on a three hour private tour of Pinewood. Every filming location, the underwater tanks, the sound studios where they mix the music, the various green screen rooms. The only place we couldn't go into was this one area where they were currently shooting at the time. I think it was last jedi um so w we saw every area of this and and a lot of the places i recognized from various films from old tv shows but at one point she said um oh we should find out if uh, roger moore is here and my girlfriend looked at me like are you gonna lose it right now like she shot me a look like and I looked at her and I, I made the motion like, don't say anything, don't say anything. I don't want to give this away because Roger Moore is my favorite Bond. He was the my, you know, the first one I saw in a theater. He's, you know, my favorite movie star basically. So, I started thinking maybe she's talking about some other Roger Moore, like the head of security or the janitorial <laughs> Roger Moore or something. You know, a coincidence. The, yeah, the, where he spells with one O in his name instead of the two O's. So. Sure enough, she says, oh, let's go down to his office. And we look, and there on a door, it says, Sir Roger Moore. And I was like, oh, if she opens that door and he's standing there, this is, I'm, I might lose it. I've never lost it in front of anybody, but I might lose it. <laughs> so she knocks, and we hear, come in. And we went in there, and unfortunately, Roger Moore wasn't there that day. Oh. His private secretary, Gareth Owens, was there and i know gareth from the bond events he's uh he's another figure just meeting him was impressive but we walked into the inner sanctum of roger moore's office floor to ceiling memorabilia every action figure book poster i mean the place was like it was like being in a roger moore fan's brain you're just looking around like oh my god could could i just spend the next hour in this place like looking around so i talked to gareth I told him, please, if, if you can ever get message to Sir Roger, that we would love to have him come to America on one of his speaking tours. He does tours all over England uh, talking about the old days. And Gareth, unfortunately, told me Sir Roger is not really up to traveling these days. 
And of course, he died a few weeks later. So that was a, a kind of sad. But it was so great to be in that that office of his. And afterwards, we went to the commissary, the studio's comm- commissary. And our guide turned to me and she said, oh, I never asked you, who is your uh, favorite James Bond? Because I was playing it super cool. And I said, <laughs> well, it, it's actually Roger Moore. And she gasped and said, you didn't say anything. Why didn't Why didn't you... And then she looked at me and smiled and she said, you must have been scared out of your mind when I opened that door. I said, yeah, I I was. She said, well, that must have been very special for you. And I said, yep, it sure was. It's just one of those moments. Uh, It would have been great if he was there, but it's almost better that he wasn't. It it became its own little quiet connection with the man. He's, uh, I got a call a few weeks later from my girlfriend. She was in Cannes at the time covering that film film festival. She woke me up and said, I'm so sorry about Roger. I didn't know the news yet. She broke it to me that he was gone. So it was it was a, a rough day. But when I went into the office later on that day, my uh, boss told me, if you want to take the day off, you, you can. <laughs> Everybody do. <laughs> it's like a death in the family. Oh man, that is wild. No, you told me that. I, I mean, I remember, I remember hearing that story before, and I was just like, I mean, you know, you could, I, I don't know, it's just who you are. You just hear that, you know, that genuine, your genuine respect and admiration and love for the guy, you know, and to, you know, to be, and there was no, and you know, what I really love about it is there's, you know, there's, there's not a hint of bitterness or cynicism that you just missed it like you got cheated you know what i mean like there's so much i don't know it's just really it's just really sweet and admirable how you know how touched you were just to be in the space and how much you appreciated that you know that you know not not to try to artificially bring things around full circle to the you know to the kind of the ethos of the best pandemic ever podcast but i mean that's what we you know that's what we really search for is that kind of the genuine appreciation of the silver lining and the positives and you know, that, that's we, we always ask people, it's like, yeah, you know, what what are you taking away from this? That's positive. And all the messages that we put out, it's like, you know, are are you going to be more isolated or are you going to appreciate that you need to be around people? Are you going to be, you know, I, I can't think of all the examples, but, you know, and that's that, to me. That's why I asked you to tell that story, because I knew I remembered how like how warm and genuine and, and appreciative of you were of whatever the experience was. You know, it wasn't there was no hint of any you know, regret whether you get cheated or yeah. Yeah. It's very much. And I think very much in line with the kind of how we, you know, how we're trying to get people to think about this experience. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's been one of the, the, my favorite parts about this show is finding those silver linings. It's, it's, um, it's about, it's not what people would expect. You hear the the best pandemic ever. You think it's going to be this full of snarky irony where it's going to be a lot of like, jokes about the the you know have a, a little bit of a darker nasty vibe and it has the exact opposite it's not about that at all um so it's 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 really been a, a great listen this whole this whole pandemic <laughs> yeah we're trying to figure out you know how do we you know we we're hoping so you're the guy that one of the guys that's been a, a guest several times jamie mustard he's such an interesting good guy and really gracious to come on because i mean he's one of those guys that's just in demand by fortune 50 companies and mm. speaks to all kind of and he's been so gracious and, you know, he always tells us, like, guys, oh, like, don't underestimate the power of a good idea. And we're like, well, you know, as the pandemic wanes, 
you know, people aren't going to really care about the best pandemic ever podcast. It won't really make sense contextually. And, you know, it, but we're hoping that it's, you know, it will evolve into, you know, constantly looking for positives. We got a young guy coming on next week, coming on uh, next Friday, high school kid who has, you, oh, you got to listen to this episode, Matt, is Saf, his name is Safik, and he, um, he created an initiative. Uh, I forget what it was called. It might have been the Cape Fear Mask Clasp Initiative. Anyway, he 3D, he started this initiative 3D printing these mask clasps that made the masks more comfortable for healthcare. This is a high school kid. Oh, wow. This kid has done these un- yeah, unbelievably remarkable things. And, and, and the more and more we look, the more we look, the more we find, you know, people making the best out of this right. and figuring out what, you know, what those positives are. Because they're, they're, and everybody we bring on, you know, always goes, always goes there. You know, we had this guy, Jake Green on, just an old Green Bay buddy of mine. Um, he, you know, we call the episode the man with one shoe because he, because he only has one leg. He lost, you know, lost it. And so, um, and he said, he said, you know, people ask me about COVID and I tell them I love it and they're aghast. And, but then he's like, I've been able to spend more time with my kids. I'm home right. more. He's like, you know, this is what I left the army for. Is I left the army to be around these people, you know? Um, and so, yeah. So anyway, that was in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, I got to make sure I get around to that, to that, to that very warm story about Roger Moore. Cause it kind of oh, captures that's that. Great. Well, I love sharing that one. So it's, yeah. it's one of my favorite memories. So I can see why. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's awesome. This is, this has been fun. Um, so is there anything else, Matt, about this pandemic that, uh, you know, that you found to be just like the big silver lining for you, you know, has it enabled you to do something different or more or that you wouldn't have otherwise had time to do? That's being a creative, especially I, I imagine there's something there. The hard thing being creative is finding time to, to spend enough time developing whatever it is that you're working on, whatever project it is. And everybody's attention is pulled in, so many different ways and you still have to pay the bills, but then you have this side project that you want to develop. I don't know if I would have launched the the Western podcast, which has been so rewarding if, if it wasn't for this. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to spend as much time with my girlfriend as I am, where we're both home working. We've managed, um, I think our relationship has managed to, to hold together really well. We're, um, We've learned some ways to get along. We've learned some ways to give each other space. So this has been a, a learning experience for both of us. It's been creatively quite rewarding. I still feel a little guilty saying that, considering the the shape of the world. But if I'm being honest, creatively, this has been a, a bit of a boon to me. Um, I'm looking forward to it eventually ending. And then trying to take some of these lessons and these skills that we've learned along the way and apply them post-pandemic. I hope that that that's able to stick. It's some, sometimes you just need to see a a change happen in order to appreciate what you had before and what you'd rather have. It snaps you out of that rut that you might have been in. I feel like a lot of us were in that. I was definitely. So uh, I'm still grappling with the guilt of the whole thing about <laughs> You know, how do, how do you navigate that? And, um, but, but if I'm being honest, it, it, there, there's yeah. been some benefits here. Well, I, think that's yeah, awesome. we, I mean, we always say, yeah, we always say of the, of the show, you know, from the very beginning, 
you know, we never wanted to, to minimize anybody's suffering. We never right. wanted to deny the fact that it could, you know, it was very, it could be very ter- terrible for, for people. But, you know, we also didn't want people to get mired down in the, in the fear and the, in the anxiety and, you know, and then allow that to, to shape how they were going to live their lives. You know, again, I, so I don't really like musicals. Not a big fan. There's a handful of them. They're undeniable. They're undeniable. I well, you've written a couple, him, but I've been to a few. You've written a couple amateur <laughs> musicals that you've never actually put out there. But so I get it. You know, it's, it's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah, my favorite one was. Yeah, my favorite one was "Shut the Hell Up, Jared." It is actually a short. It was actually a, a short different piece. Jared, spelled different um, than me. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 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 um, but every once in a while, you know, there's there's a couple you can't deny, right? We took the kids. You know, um, my in-laws. Uh, we all went to New York Christmas time several years ago when the boys were much younger and we got tickets to see Wicked. It's undeniable that that, that that musical was phenomenal, right? So, but there's not many. But for some reason, um, the music of the night was on one of my playlists, right? Uh, from the Phantom of the Opera. Yep. It's, oh, very, yeah. it's a very moving piece of music. But again, I'm not... That's not like a no, fan that's an of that incredible, stuff. It came up for incredible, some reason. Incredible. Mm-hmm. We got right? to see it. It's an incredible piece of music. And I had this, for some reason, I had this vision of, oh, I was just imagining, as that music played, I suddenly imagined, like, people going back to shows on Broadway. And in the background of that music, I could see these people just kind of embracing one another. Yeah. Just so happy to be around other human beings. And it was like, I think I was driving in my car. It's like this very emotional realization of what could happen when people finally feel safe to reconnect with one another because we need all that like as human beings it is undeniable i can show you every study in the world that says we need that kind of contact and intimacy and connection and i can show you zero that says we thrive you know when we're when we're alone um and uh yeah so so like that's my kind of fantasy of what is going to happen when things people finally feel the freedom is there they're going to go out and they're going to be so grateful to have to be connected with people again you know i i I am absolutely going to do everything within my power to 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 crush the idea that we should do away with handshakes in the future and embrace the ideas that we should just go straight to hugging you know i mean (laughs) let's go start hugging strangers you know that's what we need to that's where we need to land It'll be interesting to see how those changes are. I, I know what you mean about the musical thing. For me, it's concerts. Um, I, one of my favorite concerts over the last couple of years was seeing Rob Zombie outside, <laughs> outdoors at this massive festival with Marilyn Manson before him. And, and everybody is crammed together. And I was right up front and there was a packed at like sardines and then you'd hit a, feel a wave of people crush against you. And then you push back that kind of, it would be nice... Uh, these days, that that experience would be so different. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future for that era, that those kind of activities. I, I hope it comes back in some form. I, I think human. I think human beings will. I think it'll just drive it. I think they'll right. just. You know, it'll just. It's an inevitability that people have to be connected to one another, and they'll overcome it eventually. Here's hoping, anyway. Well, yeah. back then it was kind of frustrating. You just want to watch the band, and then all these people slam into you. I didn't wasn't loving it necessarily, but now I look back on it so fondly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you're on California. I'm, you know, I'm in North Carolina. Nostalgia is a funny thing, right? Like right. right now, we are so nostalgic for snow. 
You know, we're like, oh, the snow. We're watching the Weather Channel, the snow, the snow, the snow. But if, you know, we all go back to Rhode Island because, you know, Matt and I and Christine, we all grew up in Rhode Island. Man, it's like we'll die up there. Like, right. you'll be dead in a month buried under that snow. Oh, yeah, man. It's hell on earth, man. It's rough. Yeah, because it turns to nasty so slush. is a funny you know? thing. Yeah. What's that? I see. It turns to it turns to nasty slush in a day, right? So if you don't get, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, that's right. yeah, you know, Ohio, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, snow. I mean, my yeah, we uh, I haven't been living around snow for quite some time. But before Dad got out of the army, I mean, the last place they were stationed was Fort Drum, and that's Watertown, New York. And so it was always fun to go <sighs> up there. Oh God, yeah, it was always fun to go up there in the winter for about yeah. a week. But I couldn't imagine being up there all all year. I mean, it's gorgeous in the summer, okay. but man, yeah, that's the. Uh, that's the, the geographic feature up there is the Tug Hill Plateau, and it is the most snow east of the Mississippi. Yeah. Or maybe east of the Rockies. Maybe east of the Rockies. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the a whole lot lake of snow effect. It's just like, yeah. oh, it's it's wild. But anyway, yeah, very cool. Well, Matt, this is man, this is great. It's so great to see you um, and, and, to, and to catch up a little and to hear your stories and get your perspective on some stuff. And, you know, the door is always open over here on the East Coast. We just got a, we just got a little place in Wilmington, a little – 1300 oh, nice. square foot little brick ranch that you know is our little our little i got christine a little piece of the ocean that she's been demanding for years and years and years and the one thing we want is for all the people that we know to use it so if you ever decide on a beach vacation man the door is open for you oh so, that's so good to hear well this is my pleasure today this has been a really fun for me too awesome yeah, this yeah been great. awesome we appreciate sure. it thank you very much for being here um you know we look forward to having you back again, and and thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's yeah. great to see you. Sounds great, guys. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. If you made it this far, you either fell asleep, are trapped under something heavy, or were genuinely interested in the episode. If you fell asleep, get some rest. If you're trapped under something heavy, get some help. If you were genuinely interested in the episode, tell your friends. Like, subscribe, share download do all those things press all those buttons spread the word no matter how you got this far we sincerely appreciate it thank you for listening see ya